I want to tell you about a man named Eddie. Eddie was a World War II vet, came back. He was among those that had the hard time settling back into life. So he hit the skids pretty quickly, got involved in alcohol and lost jobs, car accidents, time in prison. And it was there in prison that he came to the bottom of his own life and someone graciously led him to Christ. And he came out of prison a changed man. And for the rest of his life, Eddie told that story very gladly to anyone who would listen. Famous for taking the words from Amazing Grace and turning them into his story. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Let me tell you how God did that in my life. He would routinely tell it at businessmen's associations. He would tell it on the street to all sorts of people. In the church, he was known, oh, Eddie, he's got a story. Make sure you hear Eddie's story about how he came to Christ. And years later, he was sitting with his grandchildren, and he began telling them the story of how Jesus saved him when he was a young man. And then one of his grandchildren looked up at him and said, what happened next, Grandpa? Do you have more stories, Grandpa? And God used a child to help Eddie look back on a life where he spent his time talking about what God did way back when and had nothing to tell about what happened after that. God doesn't just save us from death. He saves us to life. And the promised land, we're at this stage in our journey through the Old Testament narratives, the promised land represents that life that God intends for us. And we're going to be reading in Joshua chapter 3 today. This is really a story about two generations. We got a good look at the first generation a couple of weeks ago, the generation of the Exodus. Today we're going to look at the generation of the exploits. Now, one of the things we've learned going through the Old Testament is that it really doesn't have a lot of heroes. There's a lot of characters, not a lot of heroes. These people are just like you and me. They're not great because of themselves. They're great because of God's grace and God's call in their life. They struggled, they failed, they needed forgiveness just like you and I. But this truly is a generation of heroes. This is one of those moments you pause and go, what is it about this whole generation of people that allowed them to possess the land? And what can we learn from them so we will be that generation? One is the lost generation. One is the great generation. They are marked by two very similar miracles, two partings of the water. For the generation of the Exodus, there was the parting of the Red Sea. What we're about to read is a very similar event for this new generation. It's the parting of the Jordan River. I think it's important to note that we're talking about two generations, both of which were the children of God. This isn't one generation that missed heaven and another generation that made it to heaven. This isn't about that. This is all happening in the here and now. This first generation of people that missed the promised land were God's children. He had brought them to himself. He delivered them out of Egypt. All the while, God ushered them around the wilderness for 40 years until they all passed away. He was still their God. There was still the tabernacle. They were still following him. He was still feeding them with the manna. They were still in relationship with him, but they were unable to step into this full life 
that God had prepared for them. And what I'm suggesting is that there are, are those of us, perhaps here, or certainly those of us that are pursuing Christ, that that's the equivalent of their whole spiritual journey. And they think because God's meeting their needs and guiding them in some way, they feel His presence, that they're having everything that God intended for their spiritual journey. When in fact, all they're doing is following God around the wilderness, thinking that the manna and the miraculous provision is all that God intended when He has so much more that He wants for us. What's the difference between the generation that got there and didn't? That's what we want to look at today. Joshua chapter 3, I'm going to read the whole chapter, 18 verses. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and they went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. See, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord... The Lord of all the earth set foot in the Jordan. Its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Let's take our first contrast between these two generations based on this question. What was the goal of the miracle, of the partings? For the generation of the Exodus, it was to escape prison land. The Red Sea was an exit from a life where they were enslaved and imprisoned. What was the goal for the generation of the exploits? It was to enter the promised land. One was an exit. One was an entrance. 
you can actually see the perspective that resulted in each of these generations. The lost generation, the generation of the Exodus, spent their whole time doing what? Looking back. Always focusing on Egypt. First it was rejoicing that they weren't there anymore. And then as things got rough, what were they perpetually suggesting? We should go back. We should go back. In many of our lives, as long as we're talking about all the things God delivered us from, those things are still in our focus. We haven't moved from them. Paul says we forget what lies behind and we strain forward for what lies ahead. And I think it's hard to leave things behind. I find that people that have been saved from lives of habitual sin or addiction, and all they do is talk about it, so focused on it. When things get bad, when my faith has some dry and hard times, I can always go back to that. There was some satisfaction in that addiction in that life. See, that was the lost generation. They were perpetually looking back. The new generation had seen the failure of their parents, watched as probably two million of their aunts, uncles, parents, and all their friends died. That's roughly 140 people dead every day, 364 days a year for 40 years. Talk about having this object lesson as you grow up about what it means to only ever be looking back and to fail, therefore, to take the bold step to move forward. For them, as God parted, this was out of the mediocrity of the life in the wilderness into the place of promise. This was an entry in. It's very important that you understand that. Looking forward and taking the bold steps that God calls us to is empowering. Second question that I think will help us compare these two generations is, how did God lead them? The generation of the Exodus was directed by God by the Shekinah glory, the pillar of smoke by day and fire by night. You may remember our telling of these people coming out of slavery under the blood of the Lamb, through the waters, into this new life with God, and that period being equivalent to our young journey in Christ, those of us that have a new faith in Christ. In fact, Jose says of that time, God says, when Israel was a child, I, I taught him to walk. Out of Egypt, I called him. I taught him to walk just like a parent holds a child up by the arms. This is that period of their life. They're, they're growing, but they're helpless like children. They needed the miraculous, the mystery, the, the power that was bigger than all of Pharaoh that guides us. They needed that. They needed the lesson of that Shekinah glory resting in and above the Holy of Holies at the tabernacle that sat at the center of their encampment so they could remember that God is with us, but He's also not one of us. When the Shekinah glory left the tabernacle and began to move, everybody moved. See, it's the life of an infant. This generation is led no longer by the Shekinah glory. They are led by the Ark of the Covenant. The only piece of furniture that was placed inside the most inner sanctum of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies. And where the Shekinah glory would come and rest was on the mercy seat, which was the golden top to the Ark of the Covenant. 
So that represented the presence of God. But more than that, it represented a maturing relationship with God, a relationship that had responsibility to it. The Ark of the Covenant was the heart of the tabernacle and all of its practices and all of the worship that took place, the seasons, the festivals, all these things that this generation had been the first to experience their entire life, whereas their parents knew nothing of God, were beginners. This generation had grown up in the things of God. They had a relationship with God that had matured. It had substance. It included responsibility on their part. No longer was it just God doing things for us. Now, it was God doing things through us as we step up and take on responsibility as children ought to. That's the Ark of the Covenant. It's about maturity and relationship, participating with God as He moves forward with us. Third question I want to ask, what did God require of these two generations in order for these miraculous events to occur. Do you remember the state of Israel before the parting of the Red Sea? Pharaoh's army had come to destroy them and had blocked them off, and they feared that God had brought them out of Egypt just to die. Do you remember what Moses said to them before the parting of the Red Sea? Anybody? He said this, Stand back and watch the salvation of the Lord. They were helpless to do anything. That's why the Red Sea experience for us is an illustration of salvation, what it means to come to Christ, what Jesus referred to when talking about spiritual birth. Passing through the Red Sea is the equivalent of that. Jesus, I think, is using all that imagery in John 3 when he talks to Nicodemus and refers to the need for spiritual birth and water birth, you know, physical birth. That's what he's referring to. When he talks to Nicodemus about being born twice, Nicodemus doesn't get it. He throws a little Jewish humor. When Jesus says, you have to be born again, he says, what do I have to climb back inside my mother's womb? Jesus says, no, 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 no. You have to be born of water and the Spirit. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So Jesus makes his own commentary on that by explaining being born of water is physical birth. The water breaks, right? You've heard me tell this story. When we were about to have our first child, and notice how conveniently I say we. <laughs> when my wife was about to have our first child, we had a number of couples in our Lamaze class, and we'd all become friends. And um, the first one that had a child, her water broke when she was shopping for groceries, and it broke. I mean, she was very smart. She was in the jarred goods aisle, so she grabbed a big jar of pickles and went, <laughs> and the uh, manager came and said, oh, that's okay, ma'am, we'll clean it up. <laughs> Thank you very much. She went off and had the baby. For Israel, it's a passing through the water. This is birth into their life with God. An analogy for salvation, when I first come to faith in Christ. And just like Israel, there's nothing I can do to get there. You and I can't earn our salvation. All we can do is stand back and see the salvation of the Lord. He does all the work for us. Ah, but in this generation, now they are children of God. They're in a mature place. What does God ask this generation to do? Basically, he says, first man in the water and not a calm river. The Jordan in its high time where it fills the whole Jordan Valley, all the floodplain. It was not an easy thing to cross. 
couldn't have happened on their own. No wading in and through. But God did say, foot in the water, foot in the water. God required of mature people an act of faith in order for him to work. As we grow, God's power is released through our obedience. You see the point here? How many of us go our whole life just talking about the past? Just satisfied to ask God to feed us and clothe us and protect us. And we think, this, this is it. This is a pretty good success strategy. And what God wants is something so much more. Him working powerfully, not just in us and on our behalf, but through us. See? But what it requires of us is a foot in the raging water sometimes. Some of us can't ever get past this idea of stand back and watch. Some of us have built a whole idea of spiritual formation on this idea of letting go and letting God. But the Bible is replete with teachings that say, God empowers my obedience. I need to put off the old life and put on the new life. We'll look at that in just a few minutes here. Question four, how did they respond to what God required of them? And in this case now, we're taking this first generation no longer at the Red Sea, but standing at the edge of the promised land, sending out spies into the land, coming back and affirming, yeah, it's everything God said it is. And yeah, it does have the, uh, all those people in there, just like God said. But now that we've seen them, they scare us. They're big and they're valiant and we can't win. Here they are having the opportunity to step into that same life of promise but they didn't get there. Why? Because they responded out of unbelief and fear. Joshua and Caleb were the only two that said, we can. The rest of them wholesale said, we can't. We can't. They let fear keep them from stepping forward. I believe there are defining moments where God says, you need to get past looking for certainty you need to get past comparing what I'm asking you to do with your former experiences, the current size of your resources, your savings account, your abilities. You need to take a step of faith, and that can only happen if what I'm calling you into is bigger than what you've ever experienced before, if it takes more than what you have within you to get it done. And how we respond in that moment is a watershed moment for us. How did the generation of exploits respond? With consecration and courage. The real theme verse of this whole section is verse 5. Let's read it again. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Key phrase there, of course, is the two words, consecrate yourselves. What does it mean to consecrate, to set ourselves apart? lining up our lives to the Christ life, to His priorities. I need to set myself apart for Him first, then worry about the other things in my life. Get the big rocks in the pail first, and then let the pebbles fall in around them. That's what God's asking us to do, setting ourselves apart for God's purposes, committed to God's plan, and available for God's power to be at work through us. I want you to notice that it's not just be consecrated. Let God consecrate you. Who does the work here? We do. Consecrate yourselves. 
This is part of that responsibility factor that God brings into our life as He matures us as His children. Just like you pass on responsibilities to your kids, not because you can't continue to meet their needs like you did when they were children, but because they'll never become adults if they don't learn responsibility. God's doing that. He's saying, you need to take the actions, making space for me to work, and then the Lord will do wonders among you. They responded with courage and with consecration, and therefore they became the generation of the exploits. God, may we be that generation. And then once God worked, how did each generation memorialize it? Well, the generation of the Exodus commemorated the passing through the Red Sea into life with God with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, what we more commonly refer to as the Passover. Still today, the Jewish people celebrate it. That was instituted by God. He gave them that as a memorial. It was about salvation, the blood of the Lamb on the doorposts of the family, the judgment of God passing over, very much about the gospel, very much about God's work for us. How does this generation, by God's instruction, commemorate this event? We pick up the story in chapter 4. Let's read just the first few verses, and then we'll jump down and pick up the rest of the chapter. Joshua 4. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests stood, and to carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. Now, just for the sake of time, we're going to jump forward to verse 19. So, on the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, What do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just what He had done to the Red Sea as He dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. So we see these two powerful memorials. One, a festival. One, a monument. The generation of exploits, it was the 12 stones. The feast was to commemorate the deliverance of God, the blood of the Lamb. Now, as we look back through Christ, we know what it was meant to do was to have the people of Israel year in and year out practicing this story so that when Christ came and John the Baptist declared, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the night before he was betrayed, Jesus, celebrating the Passover, could hold up the cup of blessing and say, this, this, it's my blood which is shed for you. That memorial event wasn't just to remember the past. It was to prepare them for the true salvation, for the Messiah, for the Savior. But then there's this monument to God's working. 
Both are important. It's why Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper each month as we do, we are in some way continuing the Passover feast because the Passover feast was about the broken body of Christ and the shed blood. And he preserves that for us and says, now you do this in remembrance of me. We need to look back, but listen to me. We don't need to look back any further than the cross. And only so that like Israel, we can look forward to the life that God has for us because now there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. You see, we need to memorialize the cross. We need to memorialize salvation. What a great gift the Lord's table is to us. But we need monuments. We need stories of exploits. <laughs> we need to develop a faith history in our life that goes from the cross forward. And we need to do it not just for ourselves, but we need to do it for our children. That's what God said through Joshua. Because someday your children are going to say, why is this here? Each generation needs to leave those monuments for the generation that will come. We need to tell the stories. Not only is he a saving God, he's a conquering God. He's a God that does mighty and wonderful things in our lives. Let us tell you some of those stories too as we learn to step forward in faith. And moms and dads, that's why your kids are only going to follow the God they see in you. What monuments are you leaving for your kids? What stories do they see of you taking bold steps of faith in ways that are beyond your strength and ability and watching God do the miraculous? I, I will rarely point to my kids as something that I take credit for because my kids are a product of God's grace. I'm just blessed right now that my kids are tracking with God not because mom and dad were perfect. Trust me, I have had to double back and apologize for things that I would be embarrassed to let you know that I've done in my home. We have failed our kids, and in the end, we all do. No, nobody's perfect in what we do. But what I think my kids would point to is that they have seen those moments, some of them by our choice, where we stepped out in faith and they saw God show up. And they can't deny that. They can struggle with the ideas and the implications for our society, but what they, can't, what they can't relinquish are the monuments, the stones that came out of the river at high season and stand as monuments in our life and say, God did that. So whatever else I'm struggling with right now, however I'm trying to figure this all out, God did that. That's an anchor to my faith. It moves us forward. See, that's our gift to them. Look at the verse again. He did this so that all the peoples of the world might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord. So three things here, quick. The first one was the previous verse. When your kids ask you, what else? What else happened, Grandpa? You have something to tell them that lets them know that, that God works powerfully. There's more for us in Christ. But then secondly, the nations see God's greatness. And then finally, when we rehearse those stories, when we tell those stories, when we build new monuments with each thing that God does, with each miraculous work of God, we are building for ourselves 
a deeper commitment to God. When the Old Testament refers to the fear of the Lord, it's not terror. It's awe and wonder. If you don't experience God doing God things in your life, then you don't have a sense of awe and wonder. God's just a convenience to you. He's a means to an end. Or He's a subject that you study in order to get some sense of doctrine and belief down. See? But all of us were meant to have awe and wonder in our relationship with God. That only comes when we put our foot in the water. (laughs) And then God moves. And that becomes a monument to His greatness in our life. I love that thought. Let me just go back as we wrap up to what I've already said is the theme verse, Joshua 3.5. And let's just explore this a little bit as we think about where we go from here. I see one, two, three, four, five quick steps through this verse. The first is the word consecrate. We've already explored what that means. And maybe this is a very good time for us to be talking about this. As you're setting up your plans for this next year, consecrate them. Set you and your kids and your plans before God. Set them apart for Him first. Get those right. Consecrate. And the second is yourself, right? What is God asking you to do in order to take you to the next level? What do you need to leave behind? What relationship do you need to restore? What is it that's holding you back? Let's stop talking theory here and let's do it. Consecrate yourself. What is it that you need to get right? Third, for tomorrow. Notice the sequence here. We consecrate and then God works. It also means that when I'm consecrating myself now, I'm doing it in faith, believing that in the future God's going to work. So even the consecration is an act of faith. Consecrate yourself for tomorrow. And then this fourth statement, the Lord will do amazing things. That's what we want to set our sights on. I don't want to be part of a generation that explains God away. Why He used to do things, but now we don't see Him do so much. I don't want to expect less of God. I want to expect more and more of God. And I want to believe that as we set ourselves apart as individuals and as a congregation, God's going to do exactly what He's put in front of us and more. And then the fifth section. Where will He do it? Among you. That word among is pretty important. The Hebrew there is not just for you or in your life. It means God's going to be present in us. So when it talks about God doing it among you, it means it's not just something we're going to sit back and watch. It's going to be happening and we're going to be in it. But it also has this idea of and among and through. So God will do these things not just in our midst so that we're experiencing it, caught up in it, but He's actually going to use us. We're going to be His hands and feet. We're going to be the vehicles through which God does these things. We believe God's called us to a region somewhere around 3% of the emerging generation show up for any church in New England, let alone uh, a church that opens this book. In a place where we've seen less and less, we have to believe that God can do more, that there are still greater things to be done. And the way we're going to do it is by setting ourselves apart for Him. Let's do that now in prayer together.
in a moment, Joel and Jess are going to lead us in a song of response. But I'm just going to let you let God challenge you. What is it? If you were to hear God say to you, consecrate yourselves. Take that step. Free yourself so that I can do wonders through you and among you. What is it that the Holy Spirit's directing you to that you may need to make some commitment to change? And just bring that to God on your own and surrender to Him. You're the God of this city. You're the King of these people. You're the Lord of this nation. You're the hope to the hopeless, you're the peace to the restless, you are. There is no one like our God, there is no one like you, God. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Say it with me. Amen. So glad you joined us today. You're dismissed. <laughs>